Well, that's a, uh, a cheery text uh, to begin with. I figured that we should, uh, instead, we should have saved that for like Mother's Day or something like that. But if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Romans chapter 3, starting verse 9. My name is Zach Lee, one of the pastors here. If you are visiting with us, we are glad that you are here. You've come in on a very difficult Sunday, though, as we get into uh, one of the most condemning passages uh, in the New Testament. But hang on, because there is hope at the end. We're going to be in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Now, typically when I preach, what I like to do is I like to start off with a story that's kind of funny, right? Mainly, I do that because I'm insecure and I want you to like me, okay? But I usually start out with a little story that's funny, gets everyone in a good mood, and then we get into the text. Well, because this text is about the condemnation of humanity, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to start with a really, really terrible story. Are you ready? Are you ready for it? It's going to be the opposite of a good story. Here it is. I had a buddy when I was in school who was a police officer. I've actually got a few buddies that are police officers. And anytime I have a friend that's a police officer, I ask them this question. Can you tell me a crazy story that you've encountered? Right? So once I get to know him, I want to know, tell me something crazy that happened or something exciting that happened. And so I was asking this guy, tell me a crazy story. And he goes, okay, I'll tell you a story. He said, I was driving behind this lady and she kept swerving. She kept swerving over the line and coming back and she was doing something with her hands. I couldn't tell what she was doing. He said, so I pulled her over and I walk up to the driver's side window and her window's already down. And as soon as I start talking to her, she instantly goes and grabs something off of her dash. Just a quick motion, grabs something off of her dash. And he said, I drew my weapon and I said, drop it, drop it, whatever's in your hand, it's not worth your life, like that, okay? So he doesn't know what's in her hand, he doesn't know if it's a knife, he doesn't know if it's a gun, he doesn't know what it is. He just knows that she's moving quickly with her hands and that freaks cops out, okay? And so he says, drop it, whatever's in your hand, and she drops it. Do you want to know what it was? I asked him, I was like, he's building the tension. I'm like, what what was it? What, What was in her hand? What she was doing is she was actually shooting up heroin And when the police officer got behind her, she had extracted some of her own blood because she was HIV positive, and she was going to stab that officer and give him HIV. How about that story? Isn't that awful? It didn't happen, okay? That story happened, but she didn't stab him. She didn't get... Everything ended up being okay. But here's why I start out that way. By the way, welcome to Parkway. Here's why I start out that way with that story. When I first heard that story, I thought, that lady is crazy. That's a level of evil that just is not normal. That's beyond what's normal. And then it hit me, apart from God's grace, I'm that lady. Apart from God's grace, I'm that, apart from God's common grace, that he just doesn't let us be as bad as we could be, I'm that lady. And so the reason I tell you that story is I think we have a tendency to think that before we became Christians, that before we got saved, we weren't really that bad. There were sinners, but then there were pretty good sinners. And I was one of those pretty good sinners. And so when I got saved, I only needed like 30% of Jesus's blood instead of all of it. And so the reason I tell you that story is to ask you this question, do you believe that you were potentially that evil before your conversion? And do you believe that the poison of sin still dwells in your heart? Okay? Because that's what this text is going to speak to. The book of Romans is not afraid to talk about sin. Just within the book of Romans, Paul uses the Greek word sin 48 times, the Greek word trespass nine times, the verb to sin seven times, the word sinner four times, the word bad 15 times, and the word unrighteous seven times. Okay? So I want to say this before we get into this text, though, just to, just to be really clear. If you are a Christian and you know Christ, you need to know that you are forgiven. You are loved. Your identity is in Christ. In God's sight, if you know Christ, he does not see you as a sinner, but your status has changed and he sees you as a saint. You need to keep that in mind. That in the gospel, we are declared to be something we are not. We're declared to be what Christ is, which is righteous, which is perfect. Okay? 
So keep that in mind as we go through this text. But this is a hard text, and I want you to see two things, okay? One, I want you to see how bad you and I were. And by the way, in this sermon, when I say you, I also mean me. I don't mean like righteous sack and sinful congregation. I mean all of us, okay? So if I say you, know that I also mean me. What I want you to see in this sermon is how bad we were before Christ saved us. That's the first thing I want you to see. Because if you realize how much grace you've been given, you'll love God more. Jeff said this last week in talking about total depravity and theological equipping. He said, if somebody gives you a Band-Aid for a cut, you're not as thankful as if they revive you after you've drowned. And so I want you to see that that's what God did in salvation, all right? It was a big deal. The second thing I want you to see is this. Though you are righteous, though you are perfect in Christ, he has slammed down the gavel and declared you to be not guilty. There is still the poison and the residue of sin in your heart and in my heart, okay? Our primary identity is not the old man but there is still the residue of the old man in our lives. You with me? All right, let's pray, and then we will get into verse 9. Father, we thank you that uh, we're actually not as bad as this text says we are. We're actually far worse. But we also thank you that we're far more loved than we could possibly imagine. We thank you for sending Christ. We thank you that the gospel is not that there's good people and bad people, but that there's bad people in Jesus, and that everybody belongs in one of those two categories. And so I pray that uh, right now that you would send the Spirit, and he would encourage our hearts, and we love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, verse 9. Let's get into this awful, horrible, terrible text. By the way, Easter is next week, okay? So come back for some happiness for Easter. Like, like, like uh, Carl said, uh, Jeff's going to wear a bunny suit and preach. It's going to be awesome. That'll be next week. Verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Now, stay right there in your Bible and look up a few verses. If you're in chapter 3, look up in verses 1 through 2. Last week, the Apostle Paul asked this question. Is there any benefit in being a Jew? And his answer was yes. Jews have the Mosaic Law. There's some benefit in being a Jew, at least that they have the Scriptures and they generically know who God is. Today he asks, is there any benefit in being a Jew? And he says, no. He's not contradicting himself. He's talking about two different things. Is there any benefit in being a Jew? He says, yes, they have the Bible. But is there any saving benefit in being a Jew? And he says, no. Being Jewish does not in any sense make you right before God. Being Jewish does not in any sense prevent you from being judged. That's the point that the Apostle Paul has been making, making, okay? Chapter 1 was the condemnation of the Gentile. Even people that don't have the Scriptures are condemned because they do by nature what they know to be wrong. Chapter 2 was the condemnation of the Jew. Even people that have the Scriptures are condemned because they don't follow it. And today we get the fun story of the condemnation of everybody. Let me say it this way. My first car was, I think, a 1992 Saturn or something, okay? I I didn't get a car, by the way, until I was 19. So I was that cool kid that got to ride the bus my entire high school career. So I'm a senior sitting in the back of the bus with all the little kids, and I'm thinking, I hate my life, right? My first car I had to buy, it was $1,000. It was a 1992 Saturn, and it was red, but it wasn't all the same color red. Like, the door was a different color red, and I have no idea how I didn't die. I'm pretty sure it didn't have airbags. It was an awful car, okay? In fact, the little handbrake, because it was a manual, so when you go to park a manual, typically you'll pull that little handbrake just for safety. When I pulled that handbrake, the little button popped off. So I had no way to disengage it. Okay? So I would be on a date with somebody. This was before I knew Katie, by the way. Uh, not after I knew Katie. Uh, I'd be on a date, and uh, I'd pull up to the restaurant, and I'd be like, hold on. And I'd have to pull up the parking brake, take a pair of needle-nose pliers that I kept in the car, grab the little lever, pull it up, lock it. I'm like, all right, babe, you ready to go to dinner? You should probably pay for it, because I'm super poor. That was my first car. 
okay? Now, today, I've come a long way because I drive a 2002 Honda CRV where the cloth on the inside of the car is falling off. Okay, so you're just driving down the road and the cloth on the door just falls on your arm. It's very romantic, it's awesome. We have a tendency to think of the Old Testament Mosaic Law that way. It's okay, it's kind of, uh, you know, ir- irrelevant, it's kind of works-based, it's probably this kind of bad thing we just need to move beyond. We have a tendency to think of the law that way. But that's not what the law is like in the Old Testament. The law, the Mosaic Law, is like a Lamborghini, all right? It is fast, it is beautiful, It runs well. The problem is not with the law. But if I take a Lamborghini and I put a little kid behind the steering wheel, let's say a two-year-old, and I just lay a brick on the accelerator, how do you think that's going to go? As I see that kid speeding off, do I think to myself, that'll probably turn out fine. That'll probably turn out just fine. You know, no, he's going to wreck. And in fact, because the car is so good, he's going to wreck faster and he's going to wreck harder than he would if he was in my Honda. That's what the Apostle Paul keeps saying about the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law is not bad. The Mosaic Law is good. It's the perfect revelation of God. The problem is us. Because of sin, we're like that little kid and we can't drive it. And so all it does is it leads to more and more condemnation. And so what Paul is going to say is that whether you're Gentile or whether you're Jewish, there is no benefit when it comes to salvation, all right, for salvation. Look at this last part here, charge that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That phrase, under something in the New Testament, is stronger than we typically think of it. To be under something means it's your master, okay? If you're under Christ, you follow Christ. Uh, a, A wife is to be under her husband. She follows her husband. When this text says that we're under sin, what that means is before Christ, sin is our master. Sin owns us. Let me say it stronger. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. Let me say that again. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are by nature, post-Adam. Everybody sans Christ is born into sin, and you are by nature a sinner, just like me. You see, it's kind of like, here's maybe a good illustration for what Paul is saying. It's kind of like if God asks you to jump over the Grand Canyon, okay? He said, anybody that jumps over the Grand Canyon, the Grand Canyon's good, the Grand Canyon's beautiful, anyone who jumps over the Grand Canyon gets to be saved. Now, would some people jump further than other people? Sure they would. LeBron James is going to jump further than you or I. Tim Hollis, by the way, who used to be able to dunk a basketball, even though he's like four foot eight, he would jump further than us, right? An Olympic long jumper will jump further than us, but does anybody actually jump the Grand Canyon? No. So what you need is you need the God-man. What Jesus does is he puts you on his back and he jumps over the Grand Canyon with you on his back. You don't contribute. If anything, you're dead weight. That's what sin has done. We are unable to follow God. We are unable to walk in righteousness. It's like we're trying to jump the Grand Canyon, but because of sin, we cannot do it, which is why we need Christ. What then? Are we Jews any better off when it comes to salvation? No, not at all. Not in any way. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Verses 10 through 18. Now, this is a tough one. This is the, I I doubt very many of you have these verses on like a coffee mug, or we go into your guest room in your home and like crocheted on a pillow is the venom of asps is under their tongue, something like that. But I want you to see this strong condemnation in this passage. As it is written, meaning this is from the Old Testament, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, meaning spiritually worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, uh, an asp is a venomous snake, by the way, like a viper. 
The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the longest stringing together of Old Testament quotations in Paul's letters, and he uses it to talk about the sinfulness of humanity. There are 14 direct condemnations of us, right? None is righteous, no, not one, that's one. No one understands, that's two. No one seeks for God, etc. and there are 14 of them. This is what rabbis used to call pearl stringing, where they would take a bunch of Old Testament texts, put them together to show you that they're trying to show you this is something that pervades the Scriptures, Paul's trying to say, I'm not proof texting. I'm not taking one text out of context. I'm trying to show you this is a consistent theme throughout the Bible, that mankind is sinful and broken. And listen, this is important. We, because of sin, are not just wounded. We're not just spiritually deaf. We're not just spiritually blind. We are spiritually dead. Do you see the difference? If someone's wounded and I ask them to come to me, They might be able to limp over or they might be able to crawl over. But if they're dead and I say, will you come to me? Guess what they do? Nothing. They just be dead. That's the nature of death, okay? Let me do a little church history real quick. First Great Awakening was this revival that went on in the United States, and it was excellent. First Great Awakening, everybody give me a thumbs up. Thumbs up, yay. First Great Awakening, yay. We like the First Great Awakening. It was led by a lot of Reformed guys, a lot of Calvinistic guys, guys like Jonathan Edwards and guys like George Whitfield, and they were preaching the gospel, and tons of people were just getting saved. They weren't working all the emotions. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is the most famous sermon to ever come out of America, by the way, he simply would put on his glasses, and he would read it quietly, and people would fall on the floor begging for repentance, okay? Just a mighty move of God. First Great Awakening, yay. But then you got the Second Great Awakening. Boo, Second Great Awakening, not good, all right? In the Second Great Awakening, you had a lot of guys that were not Reformed in their theology, and what they thought that you needed to do was use a lot of hellfire and brimstone preaching to try to scare people into the faith, okay? You had a guy named Charles Finney, Charles Grandison Finney, who was literally a heretic. He didn't believe in original sin. And he basically thought, if I can just work the emotions enough, I can get somebody to make a decision for Christ. I can convince somebody in their own ability just to trust Christ. And that's where you got the invention of a few things. You got the invention of what was called an anxious bench, where you would have this little bench up front on like a frontier revival. And if someone was feeling condemned, they could come up here and they could pray or someone could pray with them. And it's also where you got the popularization of the, wait for it, the altar call, the altar call. The idea was, if people are not born in sin and they're not born spiritually dead, if I can just play just as I am one more time or I can get that organ going hot, I can get somebody to, in their own strength, make a decision for Christ, okay? Now, let me be clear. Altar calls are not bad in and of themselves. There is a righteous way to use an altar call. Maybe some of you were saved in a church where they had an altar call where they said, if you want to receive Jesus, come up front. That's totally fine. I'm not against altar calls. What I'm against from the Second Great Awakening is a kind of theology that would say that mankind is not spiritually dead, but that mankind is just wounded. And if I can just work the emotions enough, I can get them to make a decision for Christ. What this text is saying is something much stronger. It's saying, you can't because you're dead, so your only hope is that God does something to you. Your only hope is that God regenerates you. Your only hope is that God wakes up your heart. Now, let's break down this text. We're not, this, is all, this is, you know, eight verses or so. Let's break it down. Verses 10 through 12 is what sinners are. Verses 13 through 14 is what sinners say. And verses 15 through 18 is what sinners do. Let's take each of those at a time. Verse 10, 
as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So if you're thinking, no, Zach, I think I was a little bit righteous. I mean, I was a sinner, but I at least had 1% righteous. This text is going to say none is righteous. And in case you think the word none doesn't apply to you, it's then going to qualify no, not one. No one understands, meaning no one understands how to follow God. No one has moral knowledge. No one follows God like they should. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Chapter one was the condemnation of the Gentiles. Chapter two is the condemnation of the Jews. Chapter three, you get the condemnation of everybody. Notice how many words are used here like none or all or everyone or no one. Notice the universal scope of this text. Do you see that? You see, some people will say this text is just Paul condemning certain groups. He's just condemning the Jews or he's just condemning the Gentiles. The problem is, is that groups are made up of individuals. Did Jesus die for you or did he die for the church? Yes, because the church is made up of you, right? And so what the Apostle Paul is doing in his condemnation of Jew and Gentile is, is by default, he's also condemning every single person because all of us are born broken and sinful. Now, a few things I want you to see on this text before we move on. First of all, look at verse 11. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Do you believe that that's true before your salvation, that no one seeks for God, or do you think you were looking for Jesus? Let me say it a different way. You didn't find Jesus because Jesus wasn't lost, and you weren't looking for him. He found you because you were lost. There's a theology that we hold at Parkway. We are reformed in our thinking, and that means a lot of things, but let me focus on one aspect. Let me ask you this question. Does God choose you for salvation, or do you choose God? The answer is both, and all Protestant denominations are going to hold both. Here's the question. Which one is the cause, and which one is the effect? Which one comes first? The Bible teaches God chooses us. The Bible teaches we're supposed to choose God as well. Which one comes first? Which one's the cause and which one is the effect? We at Parkway say that God is the cause. He's the one that takes the step towards us. And our belief in Christ is merely the effect, right? We are Calvinistic in that. We are reformed in that. Now, there are other churches that don't believe that. There are other churches that think that God does this. God looks ahead in the future, which, by the way, makes no sense. God ordains the future. He just doesn't look at something pre-planned that he himself didn't pre-plan. But let's back up. Let's not get into all that. God looks ahead in the future, sees who's going to choose him, and then chooses them back. Okay? That's what some people think of it. Here's the problem I have with that view. According to this text, if God looked in the future to see how many people would choose him, how many people would? Zero. If God looks ahead in the future to sees who's going to choose him so he can predestine them, then it wouldn't take him very long to count the number of people that choose him because the answer is none. This text is saying there's none who seeks for God. We're dead spiritually, not just deaf, not just wounded, not just blind. We're dead, and dead people don't do anything. They don't make decisions. They just lay there and be dead. Now, once you see another thing, look at the end of verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Let me ask you this question. Before your conversion... Did you ever do a good act in God's eyes, according to this text? Can you be good without God? Can a lost person do a good act? What does this text say? No. No. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that you can't do an act that society would deem to be good. I'm not saying that you can't do an act that other humans would say is a good or moral act. A, a lost Buddhist can help a little old lady across the street. Uh, an atheist can start an organization to help feed the poor. I'm not saying that you can't do an act that society would say is good. 
What this text is saying is, in God's eyes, you can't do any good before Christ. Do you see how strong this is? It's not just that before Christ we sinned. It's that before Christ, all we did was sin. The Bible says anything not done in faith is sin. As that person is helping a little old lady across the street, he does so with a heart that hates God, that breaks the greatest commandment, which is to love God with everything. Do you see? It's kind of like uh, if I was, let's say I was mowing your lawn. I wanted to be a good neighbor, and so I go to mow your lawn. But I'm mowing your lawn, but I'm also secretly having an affair with your wife. Do you care that I'm now mowing your lawn, or do you just really wish I wasn't having the affair? You really wish I wasn't having the affair. That's kind of how it is when lost people do good deeds. Yes, they're doing acts that society would say to be noble, but the whole time God is saying, you're cheating on me. You're committing adultery. You're not doing it in faith. You don't love me, and so I don't see it as good. So I don't see it as good, okay? This is what is known today, and we went over this recently in theological equipping class. This is what is known as the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity, okay? Let me explain what this does and doesn't mean because some people get confused with this. Total depravity is not that you're as bad as you could be, okay? Apart from God's grace, we could all be that lady with the syringe. Apart from God's grace, we could all be Hitler. Total depravity is not that you're as bad as you could be. It's that in God's eyes, all you do is bad. In God's eyes, you cannot do a good deed. To quote Pastor Tommy Nelson, you might be a shark or you might be a guppy, but you're still a fish, right? The idea is not that we're as bad as we could be, but it doesn't matter because whether we're committing a whole lot of sin or a whole, whole lot of sin, God sees all of our actions before Christ as sinful. That's what the idea of total depravity is, that in God's eyes, when he looks and he says, what percentage of righteous is everyone? Zero. Zero. It also means that sin has pervaded every part of us. It's not just that I sin with my actions. In fact, very few of the times that I sin, it's with my actions. Sin pervades our mind. We sin with our thoughts. Sin pervades our will. Nobody chooses Christ. Nobody wants to come to him. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And we say, forget you. And we walk away in our sin. It's that sin has pervaded my emotions. Emotions aren't bad, but they will often lie to you. You can actually have sinful emotions, okay? That sin has corrupted every part of me. And it also means that mankind is born sinful, born broken and sinful post-Adam, post-Adam, okay? Let me ask you this question. Is mankind naturally, meaning now born post-Adam, but post the fall, is mankind naturally good, bad, or neutral? Good, bad, or neutral? So what society will say a lot of times is that mankind is born good. The problem is not us. The problem is that we had bad parents, or the problem is that we listened to too much rock music, or the problem is uh, alcohol or guns or a bad education or something external to mankind. They'll say, because we're naturally good. The problem's not with us. What other people will say is that mankind is born morally neutral, that a baby is born and that baby's kind of a blank slate, what John Locke would call a tabula rasa. The baby's born as a blank slate, and if you teach the baby good things, they'll be a good person. If you teach the baby bad things, they'll be a bad person. But really, it's nurture and not nature which decides what a person turns into. By the way, that is not a Christian position. That's actually a condemned position. You know the guy that held that? It was a guy named Pelagius. Pelagius is the worst. Again, give me another thumbs down. Boo Pelagius. He is the worst. Pelagius is the guy that makes everybody late to the party because he has to go back and get his asthma inhaler. Okay? He's the worst. We don't like Pelagius. Pelagius taught that you were not born sinful, that you were born morally neutral. 
And so your job, if you could do more good deeds than bad deeds, you would literally earn salvation. You didn't need Christ to die for you. Christ was just an example of how you should live to Pelagius. And he was condemned at 418 at the Council of Carthage. He's a heretic. That's not a Christian position. The Bible will say very clearly that mankind is born sinful. Let me give you 14,000 verses. Are you ready? Here we go. We're going to throw them up on the screen for you. Notice our state before Christ. Colossians 1.21, and you who were once alienated, by the way, that's alienated from God, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you were, give me the word, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's the devil, okay? That's the devil among whom we all once lived, notice everybody once lived that way, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature good, we're by nature neutral, we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that's Satan's kingdom, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. You ever seen a movie where somebody like sells their soul to the devil for money or whatever it is? The problem with that is that the devil already has it biblically. That's the default. You are born into Satan. You are born again into Christ. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. When the Puritans would teach their kids the alphabet, they would link it to biblical themes. So the letter B would be, the book and my heart shall not part, meaning trust the Bible. Or when they get to Z, it's be something about Zacchaeus. You know him, the wee little man. Don't sing the song. You know what I'm talking about. For A, here's what they would say. They would say, A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. That's what this text is saying. Psalm 51.5. Look at this one. This one's fascinating. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Okay? Now, this is not talking about David's mother's sin. I've heard some people try to interpret that way that David's somehow talking about his mom sinning and having him as a son. That makes no sense. The context of Psalm 51 is that King David is confessing his sin of sleeping with Bathsheba. And here's what he says. The reason I committed these sins, God, is because I was a sinner from the womb. I was a sinner from the womb. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. When sperm meets egg, you have a little sinner. You have a little sinner. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 7.18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, post, or pre-Christ, dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have a desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. We cannot follow God's law before Christ. We're broken in sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Colossians 2.13, and you who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Notice another time where he says we're dead in sin. And I have a few more. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God, that's Christians, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Titus 3.3, 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Psalm 14, 2 through 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see uh, if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even not even one. Have I sufficiently beat this dead horse? This is not something that you're allowed to just disagree on. This is something the Bible says is very clear. If you say, Zach, that makes, 
That paints a really dim picture of mankind's ability to save ourselves. That's the point. That's why we need Christ. That's why we're called Christians and not good people, Ian's. Okay? That's why. It's because of these texts. Here's what this text is saying. This text is saying, in your natural state in sin before Christ, you cannot choose Jesus on your own free will because your free will only wants to sin. God has to give you a new nature that wants to follow him. You cannot choose Christ. You cannot do anything that's good. You cannot do any good acts in God's eyes. And you have no positive righteousness. And you have no positive righteousness. Now, let's say, despite all that evidence, you say to yourself, Zach, I still don't believe this. I still think people are naturally neutral or naturally good. Let's step away from the Bible and just give you some examples. Raise your hand in here if you have kids or you've been around kids a lot. Okay, a lot of people. Ever in your life have you had to teach your kids how to sin? Ever? Did you ever have to teach them how to lie? Did you have to teach them how to throw a fit? Or have you had to spend your entire life teaching them how to do what's right? It's almost like the sin is already in them. Am I right? Listen, if they were born morally neutral, you would have had to teach them the sinful things and you would have had to teach them to do the righteous things. Why do they already know how to do the evil things, but you have to teach them that those things are wrong and they should do what's right? So even apart from the Bible, I think you have to confirm this is true. Let me give you a few examples. Who taught your child to lie the first time they lied to you? Right? So what they'll do is they'll come up and you'll say, uh, little Johnny, no more cookies, all right? You've already had enough cookies. You can't have any more cookies. If your name is Johnny, by the way, I apologize. That's just my little kid name for this illustration. So Johnny comes up, and you say, no more cookies, and then you realize that the lid is off of the cookie jar. And you say, Johnny, did you eat another cookie? And he will come up to you, chocolate all over his mouth, and he will look you right in the eyes, and he will say, "Uh uh-uh, right? Who taught him that? Did you ever sit down, and when you were teaching him his shapes, and you were teaching him his colors, did you ever sit down and say, the next time you want to avoid the consequences of your actions, say the opposite of the truth? How did they learn how to do that? Or when your child hits another child, did you teach them that? So my son sometimes will do that. If he's holding a toy and another kid comes by him, he will defend that toy with all his might, and he will hit that. Where did he learn that from? Did I teach him that? Did I sit down with Judah, my son, and I say, do you see that over there? That's Mr. Tim. Mr. Tim has some cool jeans, but daddy is bigger than Mr. Tim. And so then I go over and punch Tim in the mouth and take his pants. Is that what happened? Where did my son learn that if I didn't teach it to him? Where does your kid learn to throw a fit? Does he learn that from you? You and your spouse can't decide what you want to watch on Netflix? And so one of you falls on the ground and starts arching your back and screaming and throwing your shoes and all that. If that's the case, we want to help you here at Parkway. Okay? (laughs) We have ministries for you. Where does your child learn to absolutely throw a fit because they want to rebel and they hate your authority? It's already in them. Where does a little kid learn how to steal? Did you teach them to steal? Sometimes they'll take a toy out of another kid's yard. They'll take a toy out of a kid's hand. They're at the grocery store. They'll steal a little pack of gum. Did you teach them that? Did I sit down with my son and I say, that's Mr. Carl. He plays the French horn. But we want to make Mr. Carl cooler, so we're going to steal his French horn. We're going to take what doesn't belong to us, and we just take it. No, no. You see, the sin is already in them. St. Augustine writes about watching uh, this case where there was a mother who had two babies, okay? Two babies. She nurses one baby, and the baby's completely full. So it's not like the baby's lacking milk. The baby's completely full. She sets the baby down. The baby's happy. She then goes to pick up the other baby to nurse that baby, and the first one becomes livid with jealousy. The baby's not missing out on anything. The baby just hates 
that mama's giving attention to another baby to give that baby food that the baby needs to survive. Where does that come from? Where does the jealousy, where does not caring for others starts that young? Because we're conceived in iniquity. We're brought forth in sin. You see, what some of you are saying is, well, Zach, it's not that the kids are bad. They just don't know any better. The problem with that is that assumes that for something to be evil, you have to know that it's evil. By that logic, just never teach your kids the Bible and then they won't be held accountable. The problem, though, is that we are held accountable for the law, whether we know it or not. We are held accountable for what's in Scripture, whether we know it or not. If your kids were born morally neutral, you would have to spend half your time teaching them to do the evil things they do and half the time teaching them to do what's right. But you've never done that. You spent your entire life trying to teach them what is right. Now, this is not a critique of kids, by the way. If you're like, why does Zach hate kids? Man, that baby, that new baby's keeping him up at night. This is not a critique of kids, okay? This is a critique of us. I'm trying to show you this is not something learned. This is something inherited from Adam. This is something inherited from Adam. The largest contingency of lost people to where we're sitting right now meets just down the hall. Meets just down the hall. Now, also, let me just say this as a clarifier. This also doesn't mean that God couldn't give grace to a child who dies, okay? If God decides to save a baby who dies, it's not because of that child's innocence, though. It's because of God's grace. It's because of God's... There's no such thing as an age of accountability. The age of accountability is conception. That's when you're held guilty before God. But God can always give grace to whomever he desires, I'm not going to go into that topic. We have a very helpful blog online that Jeff wrote about that. But I just want to say, if you've lost kids and you hear that they're sinful, don't immediately rush to this worst-case scenario. Know that God can give grace to whomever he wants, but it's because of his grace and not because of their innocence. Verses 13 through 14, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Let me pause on that real quick. I just want to tell you a little weird story. Jeff Ashley who is a wordsmith, will often correct me because I will use the phrase poisonous snake. I'll say, you need to watch out if you're going to go out there. There's poisonous snakes. And he'll say, Zach, they're not poisonous snakes. They're venomous snakes. And I'll say, what's the difference, nerd? And he will say, when you bite something that's poisonous, it hurts you. When something that's venomous bites you, it hurts you. That's the difference. So if you eat something, you bite something that's poison. That's poisonous. If something bad bites you, it's venomous. Okay. And so then I realize that he's right, and I have to change my argument. And I say, well, no, what I meant is if you were to eat the snake, it would poison you, and you would die. That way I don't lose the argument, okay? But he's right. It's venom. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, okay? Notice the progression here in this text. Throat, tongue, lips, mouth. Now, let me tell you why this is such a big deal. Why is the Bible critiquing what sinners say? Here's why. The Bible links your words to your heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if your language is perverse and filthy, it's because your heart's perverse and filthy. If your language is uh, encouraging, it's because your heart is righteous. What this text is saying is that their, their language shows how sinful and broken they are. You can't divorce the two. If I'm on a plane and I yell, bomb, what's gonna happen? I'm gonna get arrested. And as they're dragging me off to jail, I can't say this. I can't say, I didn't say bomb. I didn't really think there was a bomb. It was just my words. My words said bomb. They're going to say, your words are linked to you. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words are linked to you. That's why you're held accountable for this, okay? Words and heart are linked in the Bible. You can't see God. God is invisible. No one has ever seen God, the scriptures say. How do you know who God is? By the word of God, Jesus. He reveals God to us because he is the second person of the Trinity, 
because he is the second person of the Trinity. Words and heart are linked. There was a time I came home, and uh, Katie was sitting on the couch. Katie's my wife, who didn't get to see my really old car, or else she would have never married me. And uh, so uh, Katie was on the couch, and she was looking kind of down. She was looking kind of sad. And I noticed that she looked both frowny and grumpy. And what I said to her is, what's wrong, babe? You look a little frumpy. Little did I know that frumpy is a whole different word that means not beautiful, that means unkempt and uh, homely or something like this. And instantly, that made her feel worse, right? She's already feeling down. Here I am calling her frumpy. And I was like, no, 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 no. No, I'm sorry. That's not what I meant. I was trying to say frowny and grumpy. I was trying to combine the words like Brangelina, and I messed up. And so I meant to say, that's not what's going on in this text. This is intentional. It's saying if you look at their speech, you see that their heart hates God. Verses 15 through 18. This is what sinners do. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Specifically, this text is going to talk about unrighteous violence. Violence in and of itself is not sinful. There's righteous violence, and there's unrighteous violence. Violence is morally neutral. This is talking about what sinners do, and here's the point that it's making. When someone hates God, what they want to do is they want to lash out at those that bear God's image. When someone hates God, what they want to do is they want to take God's most valuable creation, which is humanity, and lash out at them, okay? When we bear God's image, it doesn't mean we look like him. God doesn't have a body. He's everywhere. He's infinite. He's Trinitarian. I don't know what it would mean to try to look like him. What it means is that we are the most valuable thing that God created. We alone get to rule over the earth, opposed to dolphins or dogs or something like this. And so there's this fascinating passage back in the story of Noah where it says this, that if man sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? Because man was made in the image of God. When you seek to harm and hurt another person, it shows that you have a heart that wants to harm and hurt God. That's the idea. Why is the greatest command loving God and the second greatest command is loving neighbor? Because those two things are linked. So when you hurt neighbor, when you murder neighbor, when you do unrighteous violence to neighbor, what it shows is a heart that hates somebody else who's not human, being God. Being God. That's the point of this. They are sinful and dead in their trespasses. They say wicked things showing their evil heart. They lash out at people showing their evil heart. That's what this text is saying. And if you look here at the end of verse 8, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's really the summary. When we did our Proverbs series in the book of Proverbs, we kept seeing over and over and over that the fear of Yahweh begins, I'm sorry, that knowledge begins with fearing God, fearing Yahweh. That's where knowledge begins. You don't grow in wisdom by just reading more books. You don't grow in wisdom by just trying to be more socially aware. You grow in wisdom by knowing God, and these people don't do that. Look at verses 19 through 20. We're almost done. Hang in there. It'll get worse before it gets better. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Here's my question for you in that text. This text just said the law is written to Jews, but the whole world is held accountable. How does that happen? What what sense does that make? Here's the point Paul is making. If even the Jews couldn't follow the law, then nobody else has a shot. If you can't run one mile, then you can't run two. If even the Jews, those people that were most poised to actually be able to follow the law, if even they can't follow the law, then all of the world cannot than all of the world cannot. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I want to show you another translation of this, uh, verses 19 through 20. Uh, We use the ESV. I love the ESV. This translation comes from the New Living Translation. I don't love that translation. It's not bad. If you like it, keep using it, but I don't love it, but I do in these two verses. I want to show you how the New Living Translation translates these two verses. 
Is this the one? Can you guys throw up the uh, New Living one? I think we've got that one up there too. If not, I can just read it. There we go. It says this. This is a good summary of 19 through 20. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. Now look at verse 20. This is a great translation. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Okay? We are. The law, the Old Testament Mosaic law, was not given so that you might keep it and earn salvation. There's this weird idea that we think that people in the Old Testament like use the Old Testament law as like a moral ladder to climb their way up to God. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God gave you the law so that you could not keep it, so that you would fail, so that you and I would see how sinful we are and how much we need a Savior because we just absolutely can't do it. That's why the law is given. The law makes sin worse. We see what the law commands, and then when we break it, we see even how awful we are because we even knew it was against the rules and we did it. That's the point of the law. God gave the law to make you fail so that you would cry out to Jesus for mercy and salvation. The law, do you guys remember, so a few years ago, all TV shows were on what was called standard definition. You had standard definition cameras, you had standard definition TVs. And a few years ago, those switched and everything became high def, became HD TVs and these kind of things, okay? And what was funny is right after the transition, you would be looking at a news reporter who previously you might have thought was pretty or handsome, and now because of the high def cameras, you could see their clumps of makeup, you could see pimples, you could see blemishes, you could see too much eyeliner. You could see all of it, okay? The Old Testament law is like a high-def TV that's laid over your life. And what it does is it shows all of our blemishes. It shows all of our pimples. It shows all of the places uh, that we fail. That's what the Old Testament law does, okay? My son used to get up near my face, and if there was any blemish or problem with me, he would point it out. He'd get right in my face, and he would poke a pimple, or he would poke a red spot, or whatever. He's like the condemning Old Testament law, just pointing out my flaws, why, Zach? What is the point of all? Why, why is Paul saying Gentiles are condemned, Jews are condemned, everyone's condemned? Here's why. Romans eleven thirty two through 33. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. If 1% of your salvation or your righteousness is up to you, that's 1% of glory God does not get for all eternity. If 1% of your salvation is up to you for all eternity, you can just pat yourself on the back, that 1%, and you can look down on the people in hell and say, you should have been a good decision maker like me. You should have been smart like me and chose Christ. What this text is saying is that God wanted everyone to fall under to sin. That way he gets all the glory because he has to give mercy to everyone who trusts in Christ, who trusts in Christ, okay? Now, I want to end by doing something a little bit differently than we typically do. I want to end in a time of corporate repentance. I want to end in a time of corporate repentance. What, what Israel sometimes will do in the Old Testament is they will have times where they confess their sin and they repent and they fall down and they wail. You don't have to fall down and wail, but I want to use this as a time for us to confess our sins together. This text is going to say, you are loved by Jesus. If you are a Christian, this is not your status, but there is still a poison that lives in our hearts and for that we need to repent. For that we need to continue putting sin to death. So I'm going to do it first. I'm going to confess some of my sins to you corporately. How about that? I've been told as a pastor you should not do that because it'll hurt people's faith. And my response is, then you haven't been pointing people to Jesus. You've been pointing them towards you. Your faith is not in me. Your faith is in Christ. So let me confess just some of my own failings just this week. 
This week, I've been anxious, and I've not trusted God, despite the fact that the Bible says not to be anxious and not to worry. I've done that a lot. I've harbored bitterness and unforgiveness in my heart towards certain people. I have grumbled, grumbled and envied, and I was not thankful for what I have this week. I was snippy and unkind in my speech toward my wife. I'm sorry. I've told jokes and said words that the Bible would call unwholesome speech. I have walked in pride this week. I have loved things more than I've loved God, which is idolatry. And ultimately, when it comes down to it, I just don't believe that God is good, and I just seem to think that he's a liar. For some reason, God and Zach don't agree on Zach. Okay? And a million other things. Now, I'm growing. By the Spirit, we're always putting sins to death, and we're growing. But there are some of my failures. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to read through a list of different sins, and I just want us to take some time. And if we just need to sit there and repent before God, just right there in our chair, let's use this time to do that. Okay? So you can think, you can close your eyes if you want to, you don't have to. If you want to think, if you want to write, if you want to read your Bible, let me just go over some things. And where you need to repent, would you repent and know that there is so, so, so much mercy for you. If these are the kind of people that God saves, surely he loves you now. Surely he loves you now. If yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's hope for all of us. Let me give you some, some things here. If you have pride would you repent of that? If you think that you're better than others, you think that you have something due to your talent instead of God's grace, would you take a second to repent of that pride? Just right there in your seat. If you are angry or bitter towards someone who's hurt you, or you just don't like someone, you don't know why, you just don't like them, maybe you say that you've forgiven them, but you haven't really forgotten, would you repent of your bitterness? Who has wronged you? Whose name shows up on the caller ID and you instantly get mad again? Would you forgive that person because you've been forgiven in Christ? If you've committed some type of sexual sin this week, you've looked at pornography, you've slept with someone or fooled around with someone who's not your spouse, you've flirted with a coworker or a neighbor, though you're married, you've coveted someone else's spouse, you've had impure thoughts that you didn't immediately push away, perhaps you've committed some act of homosexuality, whatever it might be, would you repent of sexual sin? Would you repent of sexual sin? Have you stolen anything? Maybe you haven't been fully honest on your taxes. Maybe you've burned DVDs that you shouldn't. Maybe you've slacked off at work and you've stolen time from your company. If so, would you repent? Would you repent? Have you wronged your spouse, your kids, your friends, or your coworkers at all this week? Have you been snappy with them? Have you not loved them well? Have you been too harsh with them? If so, would you repent? Have you sinned in your speech? Have you lied? Have you told little white lies? Have you used profanity? Have you told inappropriate jokes? Have you been caustic and degrading and hurtful with your words? If so, would you repent? Have you been anxious? Have you allowed your doubts to own you? Have you walked in fear instead of trusting that God loves you and cares for you? If so, would you repent of your anxiety? Would you repent of your control? Would you repent of you trying to be God? Have you been ashamed of Jesus? You don't want people to think you're weird, so you kind of hide your Christianity, maybe at work or in relationships or whatever it might be. If so, would you repent? Have you been involved in anything demonic? If so, would you repent? If you've played with Ouija boards, if you uh, partook in other religions, Mormonism, Hinduism, uh, Islam, any of these kind of things, would you repent of those things? Have you done anything, been involved with anything demonic? Would you repent of that? Have you walked in envy or greed? Has your time been consumed just by making more money or wanting better things? Have you not been thankful for what God has given you? If so, would you repent? What idols do you have? What issues control your joy? 
What things have you thought about the most or put your hope in the most or worried about the most this last week? What things do you run to after a difficult day? When it's been a bad day and you just need to run to something to find comfort, what is it that you run to? What in your life, if it were taken away, would life not be worth living? Would you repent of your idolatry for loving things as much or more than Christ? Where are you walking in darkness? What sins or temptations do you have that nobody knows about? Would you repent of those things and also let someone know about them? Whether that's in a community group, maybe you have a close Christian friend, where you bring those things into the light so others can help you fight against your sin alongside you. Where have you trusted in your own self-righteousness? Where are you believing that you can contribute to your salvation? In what areas of your life do you trust you instead of God? Would you repent of the sin of self-sufficiency? And if for some reason you're someone in here who doesn't know Christ, would you ask him to save you? Would you repent of your sin? Would you turn away from your evil? Would you call him Lord? Would you love him? Would you bow the knee to Jesus just right now? You just think right now, God, I need forgiveness. Jesus, save me. Would you ask him to save you? Would you ask him for help? Because here's what you see from this text. If we are this bad and we cannot choose Christ, our only hope is on the grace of a God who loves us enough to give his son. He does love you. He does want to have a relationship with you. If you don't know Christ, would you put your hope in him? Let's pray as the men come forward to get ready to serve communion. Jesus, we thank you that you're great and that you love us and for the joy set before you and you endured the cross, knowing how awful it would be because you wanted to be obedient, because you wanted to save sinners, because you love us. So I pray right now for everybody in here who's hurting. We just confess that we're broken and we're sinful and we have no good thing apart from you. We ask that you would guide us, that you would give us mercy. As we remember your sacrifice now, we ask that you would bless this time, that you would send the Spirit to encourage our hearts. We ask all this for your glory. Amen.